Thanks for joining us on the New Beginnings Podcast, where our goal is to help people connect with Christ. We hope you enjoy listening. Reasonable doubt. This series really came from conversations that I had with other people, um, multiple people, like just whether in passing or in our church even, and people that had questions, people that had doubts, people that had struggles. And so it's funny because you can, you know, you can go up in church your whole life and then you go off and you take that world religions class in college and all of a sudden your brain is like, oh my gosh, I don't know, wait a minute. Or you have that one conversation with that really nerdy scientific guy at work and all of a sudden you're like, wait, I'm going to answer that question. Wait a minute, what if he's right? Or you, you just watch that weird YouTube video that, that was totally lopsided and, and misleading. And, or you just, whatever it is, you end up with these doubts. And again, especially if you grow up in church, what happens is, is that in church, if you grow up as a kid, I think you end up developing what I would call like a childlike faith, which is good in some ways. But what happens is, is that eventually your childlike faith runs into adult questions and you don't know what to say. And then you realize like some of those things like, wait a minute, I, I, need, I need some mature faith to answer some mature questions in life. And so no matter where you're at out there, if you're here today and you're like, man, I've never been to church before, that's okay, ride with us. If you're here today and you say, man, I go through seasons where I doubt, I struggle, I question, or maybe you're in here today and this is a common one too, where it's like, hey, I have loved ones, I have family members, I've got my buddy uh, from, from college and like they, they have real doubts and I, I just wanted to know how I could best help or answer some of their questions. That's where this series really came from. And so we started, if, you, if you've been, not been here the last two weeks, I haven't read a Bible verse in two weeks, which is really weird for me. Because um, I'm a Bible teacher. That's what, that's what I went to school for. And so, but what I realized was is that when people, truly skeptical people, when they have their questions, normally if you start with what well, the Bible says, they say, well, I don't care what the Bible says because I don't believe the Bible. And that's fair. So I thought, well, you don't, you don't have to start with the Bible to answer questions about the existence of God. You don't have to. It, it doesn't work like that. Have you ever thought about this? That really, um, God does not exist because the Bible exists. You ever thought about that? The Bible exists because God exists. Does that make sense? So you don't have to start with the Bible. You can just start with God. And so what we talked about was, though, is that if you live a life away from God, that, that has ramifications, that has implications, and you need to be aware of them because if you're aware of them, what you realize is that those implications are very, very unsettling. Something doesn't sit right with you. And then when you take the next step forward and you say, well, what about belief in God? And we talked about that, that belief in God is a totally rational, reasonable, and plausible thing. It's not a stretch. There's nothing in science that, that somehow has messed up the Bible or messed up God or, oh my gosh, you know, well, it, there's nothing in science that contradicts anything about the existence of God. It's, it's not there. And so I think there's a lot of different ways that you can say, hey, look, God is real and so real and there's just logical, reasonable ways to like, come to that deduction. But today is different. So if you haven't been there and you missed those, go watch week one, week two, go get the CDs, whatever you do. Today, though, what I want to do is make a case for the person of Jesus. Because it's, it, I think you kind, of, you kind of struggle with, okay, well, maybe if I don't believe in God, maybe I just believe in nothing, or maybe I believe just in science or materialism, but that has implications. And then I think, okay, well, now I'm ready to believe in God. But then you would have to come to this kind of question too. Well, if I believe in God... Which one's right? Which one's true? It's like everybody's got an idea. There's all kinds of different world religions or belief systems or whatever. Why is it that you actually do this whole Christian thing? And, and what I want to do is just share with you today why I think the Jesus story and the person of Jesus is so compelling and so unique that I don't even need to do a comparison of Jesus against all the other religions of the world. I didn't think that's necessary because I think when you look at the, the compelling case of Jesus that he stands so differently than any other thing that you can come up with, that it, you, you have to start moving 
in that direction. And so um, today I just want to share with you like five big ideas, if that's okay. So I'm going to try to not, I'm going to try to like bring my nerd down a little bit. I felt like I was nerd. I felt like it was pretty nerdy the last couple of weeks. I'm going to try to bring my nerd down a little bit and just share with you what I believe are five of the most compelling things about the person of Jesus that if you put all these five things together, it just makes this case for like, wow, wh- how, how could I not believe in this person named Jesus? Or how can I not at least move in that direction? And so here's what I would say to you today. Number one is this. If you want to talk about the person of Jesus, I think what you have to start with is this, is that the genealogy of Jesus gives him the potential. Everybody say potential. Okay, a little more gusto than that. Uh, Everybody say potential. So yeah, the genealogy of Jesus gives him the potential to be Christ. So if you ever read the gospel accounts, you have Matthew and Luke that start their books. And they're really just biographies. If you look at the way these guys wrote, they were not writing legend. They weren't writing even opinion because they never mixed their opinion into it. They write in a purely kind of biographical way. As a matter of fact, if you go back to their time period, they're, they're not too different than what you would look at with Greco-Roman biographies. And so these guys wrote biographies. And Matthew and Luke found it important for specific reasons, to include the genealogy of Jesus, meaning I'm going to tell you who his mama was and who his grandma was and who his great-grandma was. And I'm going to tell you, and then the other one talks about his dad's line. And the reason why that was so important was is because Jesus, if he truly was sent by God, if he truly was the Christ, or, I don't know if you know this or not, but like when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Like I'm Todd Hendricks, it's not Jesus Christ. Je- Christ was a title. So it was the same as saying Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ, meaning for them it would have been the one sent by God. Does that make sense? And so for Jesus to be the Christ, what every good Jewish man or woman knew was is that the Old Testament, this huge book of, of books, had all these different claims about who the Christ or the Messiah would be. But one of the ones that was interesting was, is like, hey, look, he's got a specific bloodline. He's got a specific family genetic code. And this is the way it works. So if you go back to the beginning, go back to the book of Genesis, everybody say Abraham. So it starts with this guy named Abraham. Remember, if you grew up in church, remember, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had. Now, if you did not grow up in church, you totally missed out on that song and you can never get that back. So Abraham, though, was this guy in the Old Testament. He's called the father of faith. This is where like a bunch of things. But anyway, he was a big deal. And in the prophecies of the Old Testament said, hey, the Messiah would come from Abraham. But then Abraham had two kids. He had Ishmael and then he had Isaac. And the Bible said that the Messiah would come from Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons and he had one son named Jacob and one son named Esau. And the Bible said that the Messiah would come through Jacob. And then Jacob had, he had like 12 kids that, you know, you see what's going on here. So then out of the 12 kids, God picks one of them. Everybody say Judah. And so the, the Bible says very specifically that the Messiah would come from Judah. And so you can see when one guy has two kids, that means half of his population is nullified from being the Messiah, right? And then when that guy has two kids, then that half is nullified from being the Messiah. And when that guy has 12 kids, we just, you see, like, it's not easy. But then it goes so much deeper because... A bunch of years later, there's a guy named Jesse, and Jesse is said that from his seed would come Messiah, and he had like eight kids, and then, then, then it goes on specifically to say it would come from the line of, everybody say David, so King David. And so the point would be this, when the, when the writers, Matthew and Luke, go back and put in the genealogy, the reason why it was important was to say this, hey, he's at least got a shot. And that's a really big deal, right? Like, because this is what every, because all the Jews uh, the Jewish leaders, most of them did not like Jesus. 
So if Jesus got up and claimed to be Messiah, what would be the first thing that they would go do? They'd go run and find out who his mom was and who his dad was, and they would immediately nullify his claim to be someone really, really special. And they couldn't do that. And remember, they wanted to do that. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. And so because they couldn't, and they all be able, were able to look at who his mom and who his dad was, this gave Jesus the, at least the potential to be someone really, really special. Now, does that mean he's the Messiah? No. There were a bunch of other people that came from the line of David. It just gives him the the potential. Now, that's just my first thought. My second thought, it kind of builds on this. The second thought would be this, is that his personal claims kind of demand that he be Jesus, the Christ, sent by God. And here's why this is so important. Jesus, when he walked around here on earth, he basically made some like huge claims. It wasn't that other people said he was awesome. He said he was awesome. You know, it wasn't like other people thought he was a big deal. He said, no, I'm a big deal. I'm kind of, I'm not even kind of a big deal. I'm a really big deal. He would make claims like this. He would say radical weird stuff like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God except through me. Everybody's like, well, that's, you think pretty high of yourself, don't you? He would say stuff like, I and the Father are one. He would make all these kind of radical claims. He would, you know what his title was? The title that he gave himself was the son of man. You ever read that in the Bible? We're like, well, the son of man came and he kind of talked about himself in the third person or whatever. And you're like, what's he doing? He's kind of a guru, you know, like, oh, the son of man. The reason why he called himself the son of man was because in the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel made all these predictions and prophecies about who Messiah would be. And Messiah in Daniel was called the son of man man. So so anybody that ever told you that Jesus didn't actually claim to be God himself doesn't know their Bible, doesn't know Jewish history, doesn't understand the language. As a matter of fact, this is the most obvious one here. This is the one that basically like almost got him killed pre the cross. This is interesting here. He goes, very truly, I tell you that before Abraham was, I am. Now, now again, Abraham lived 2000 years before Jesus. So like This is a big deal because he's saying, hey, before Abraham was, I am, meaning I've been around a long, long time. And they were all confused by this. But the most radical part was where he says, before Abraham was, everybody say, I am. Now, to a Jewish person, this was blasphemous because I am was the name of God. It was the holy name of God in the Old Testament. Remember Moses? Like a bush is on fire and he's talking to God and he's like, hey, who are you? And he goes, I am. That's my name. I am that I am. I just exist. I don't need anybody to prop me up or help me. I didn't come from anything. I just, I exist. I am. So when Jesus said this, it was him claiming to be God. As a matter of fact, this is proof that they knew what he was saying because in the next verse it says this. It says, and at this they picked up stones to stone him. They're like, we're going to kill this guy. Why? Because he claimed to be God. And it was blasphemous to them. So here's my point. If you claim to be God you kind of paint yourself into a corner a little bit, right? Like, put it this way. If Jesus is not sent from God, you kind of got to put him in a couple of different other categories because he's no longer a good guy or just a good moral teacher or just maybe, maybe he was just a guru or maybe he was a miracle worker. Who knows? Maybe, maybe some of those miracles are true. You can't put him in those categories anymore because if he wasn't God, let's just say for a second that he wasn't God. Unless he wasn't sent by God, he's not the Christ. Let's just say it for a second. Then, then one of two things. Either A... He really did believe he was God, but he wasn't. Now, have you ever met a person that believed they were God, but wasn't? Maybe like downtown, and somebody's off their rocker, 
and they need to be on medication and have some mental health tools. And, like, and I'm not making fun of you, I'm just saying like, no, there are people that truly do believe they're God, but they're not. And what do we think of them? They're mentally deranged. They're delusional people. They're in need of psychiatric help. So that's kind of where you got to lump Jesus at this point. He really believed he was God. And if he wasn't, then he's not a good guy. He's a crazy person. Which is fascinating because here's the problem with bumping in Jesus as a crazy person. He lived what is claimed to be the most incredibly moral and perfect and upright life. He helped people. He was, people today look at the, the, the teachings of Jesus and say, this guy was a world-class ethics teacher. Like the ethics, as a matter of fact, listen to what one psychiatrist said. This is uh, J.T. Fisher said this. He said, if you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's hard, I'm just saying, I'm not saying it's impossible, I'm just saying it's hard to lump Jesus in with the crazy people. It just doesn't make sense to. Or, now his, here's the other, let's say he wasn't God. If he wasn't God, and he's not in the lunatic bin, then you would have to say he, he, he claimed he was God, but he actually knew he wasn't God. That's got to be the most evil person ever, right? Like, think about it. If I got told you all that I was God, and I knew I was just a hoax and a phony and was misleading you, you're not a good person. You're an evil person. You literally have misled people from their families, from their belief system, from their values, from everything they'd ever known, and you totally lied to them. You're not a moral person. You're a liar, and you're very mean. You're mean to mislead people that way. So you got to either say either he belonged in like a mental facility or he, did, he needed to be locked up because he was a manipulator, an evil man. Those are the only two conclusions that you can come to. Or, 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 he claimed to be God. He believed he was God. And maybe he was maybe. He actually was God. Now, that doesn't prove that he was God. I'm just saying you gotta just, if, if he's not God, you got to lump him into a couple other categories. There's no other Real option. Now, here's my third thought. Third thought is this. Not only do the claims of, of Jesus really demand that he be someone special, this is where it gets crazy. The fulfillment of prophecy give him the odds of being Christ. So, now, I don't know if you know this or not, but like, if you read your Bible, there's two main chunks of it. You got Old Testament and New Testament, and in the middle was a 400-year gap. So, from the book of Malachi to the start of, of the life of Jesus is 400 years so this isn't a small time period, right? 400 years, that's almost twice the existence of America. That's a lot of time, right? So 400 years go by from the last writing of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there's all these predictions or prophecies through all kinds of different books, whether it's the book of Psalms or Jeremiah or Zechariah or Daniel or Isaiah, all these different prophetic books of the Old Testament make claims about what Messiah would do, what would happen, what would shake down, how it's all gonna play out. But all prophecy is a bit kind of vague, in nature, none of it's highly detailed because it hasn't happened yet. I, I imagine these guys are kind of seeing pictures or ideas and just writing down what they got, but it's a little bit vague. But when you start putting them all together, here's what you find. There's about 60 different prophecies in the Old Testament. I'll just, let me give you a few. So let me just, this is just a few. So like there's prophecies that talk about like how Messiah would have his hands and feet pierced, which sounds like crucifixion, right? 
But that was written 800 years before crucifixion began as a historical thing. It's just, it's just something kind of interesting. Like it says in the book of Isaiah that his own people, the Jews, would reject him, but the Gentiles would embrace him. It says stuff like there would be a, a, a voice in the wilderness crying as a forerunner before him. And then all of a sudden you see John the Baptist show up talking about Jesus right before Jesus steps on the public scene. Now, again, this is just, just minor ones. Hang with me. There's other ones that say that, that Messiah would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. That silver would be thrown onto the floor of the temple and it would be used to buy the potter's field. Well, that's pretty impressive. That's, that's a little more detail. That's a little more interesting. There, but see here, the, the, now like if you were a good con artist, you would go read the Bible, right? You would recognize that I need my claims to match up against all these Old Testament prophecies. So you could just go read this stuff. So like the Bible says Messiah would teach in parables. So he could just say, hey, look, I'm teaching in parables. I'm the Messiah, right? You could pull that off because you could read it and then perform it. But I mean, you know, there's certain things you can't pull off on your own. You can't perform necessarily. Like, for example, like how many you chose when you were born? But hey, let's be honest. Aren't you glad when you were born? You ever think about that? Think about like I talked to like my great aunt years ago and she's talking about using an outhouse. And I'm like, thank God for indoor plumbing. You know, like we've advanced. Do you think? Can you imagine living 300, 500, 1,000 years ago? I don't, people were dying at the age of 40. I, you, we're doing good being in the 21st century. But we didn't choose that, right? Just one night, dad had a look in his eye and it was just, you're here, not of your own volition. I'm I'm apparently an accident. That's what my parents told me. They were like, you were a mistake. But um, yeah, don't tell your kids that. It does, it's psychological. I had to talk to a counselor about that. But don't tell your kids that they were an accident. Just say, hey, you're not God's accident. And so, so anyway, but my point is, is like the Bible actually predicts the place of Jesus's birth. It predicts the time of Jesus's birth. It, betray, it, betray, uh, it predicts that he would be betrayed by a friend. It predicts the manner of his death, the people's reaction. It, it predicts all this stuff. Now, here's what one guy did. This is what a, a really, really smart mathematician did is he took the prophecies of the Old Testament and he did a math equation using probability and predictability. And what he determined was, is not 60 of them, but just 48 of them. But if you could pull off 48 of the Old Testament prophecies, that the odds of one person fulfilling that is one in 10 decillion big numbers. (laughs) By the way, we learned this last week. When we have this little thing right here, this is called laziness. (laughs) This is when I don't want to write 157 zeros. I just do that, right? That's what, to the power. <laughs> to the like, I ain't doing that. So that's what that really is. I ain't writing 157 zeros, 157. So that's what that means. So the, the likelihood of one person fulfilling 48 of these prophecies is 10 decillion to one. Now, I'm not saying that this absolutely proves that he was the Christ. But if I'm a betting man, if I'm laying a wager, if I'm playing odds maker, if I'm doing anything, I've got to go with like, wow, that's really, really incredible. So again, you have his genealogy, you have his personal claims, and then you have these, these fulfilling pro- pro- uh, prophecies throughout all of his life. Now, that, it doesn't even stop there, because the next thing I want to say is this, and this has to do with this resurrection. I would say number four is this, is that the resurrection really confirms his claim to be Christ. Now, you might not believe in the resurrection, but here's the problem that you're going to run into, and it's, it's really similar to his life claims. 
This is what everybody, for the most part, agrees upon now. Now, about 40, 50 years ago, you couldn't get agreement. In the scholarly levels, you couldn't get agreement. And if you were to bring up the resurrection, you'd kind of get laughed at or mocked or whatever. But now, in the highest of academic circles, most people all agree on these things. Even if they don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, this is what they pretty much agree upon. They agree that Jesus was definitely a historical figure. He really did live in that time period. And that he was crucified. Not only was he crucified, but he was laid in a borrowed tomb, that the tomb was later discovered empty, that they never found a body, that different individuals and groups claimed to have seen Jesus alive after the fact, and that the original disciples believed and claimed that he was alive as well. Now that's what's agreed upon at the scholarly level, not the popular level when you're watching YouTube videos. We're talking about like smart people with a bunch of numbers and letters and stuff after their name. Smart people. Be careful who you listen to. These are people that dedicate their whole life to the study of this. Imagine your whole life's purpose being studying the resurrection. That's what I'm talking about, people that live like that. And they all kind of conclude, like, wait a minute, okay, the, even if I don't believe in the supernatural, here's what I believe based on historical evidence and documentation and eyewitness accounts and different things that we can piece together and put together. There really was a historical Jesus. He really was crucified. He was laid in a borrowed tomb. That the tomb was later discovered empty. They never found a body, and a bunch of people claimed that he was alive after the fact. Now, that doesn't absolutely mean that Jesus rose from the dead because there's all these things. Well, you could say, well, they, they stole the body or they moved the body or maybe they, they forgot which tomb they stuck him in and they just went to the wrong place. And, and the problem with that is, is that all of those arguments end up sounding dumb when you break them down. They end up kind of falling apart. There's all these reasons why it doesn't look good that any of those could possibly be the case. As a matter of fact, watch this. This is what a lawyer said. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, who was the lead uh, professor at Harvard Law, he said this, he said the resurrection of Christ was one of the best supported events in history and according to the law of legal evidence administered into the courts of justice. That was what he said. This was a lawyer. And he said, hey, look, when you look at how we determine evidence and how we look at things and how we would come to conclusions, he said, if you just stuck all that information in the court of law, you could make a really good legal argument, a legal case for the resurrection of of Christ. And this is just something that you've got to struggle with and wrestle with. Now, now let me, let me make my last kind of point here and we'll, we'll keep moving. My last point is this, is not only do you have the genealogy of Jesus, his personal claims, the fulfillment of prophecy, and then this resurrection thing that really is hard to get away from. The last thing is fascinating because this is, this is it. It's the reaction of the disciples and the rise of the Christian church begin to validate the resurrection. Okay, now here's what I mean. And you got to stay with me. Everybody lock in for just a few more minutes of history science, nerdy, whatever, argument, intellectual arguments. So the way that we know that the resurrection went down, we have this belief that the disciples were all afraid and ran for their lives, right? Because we know Judas, out of the 12 disciples, Judas betrayed him, and then he went and hung himself in remorse and guilt. We know that at the cross, that there was only one disciple there. So like out of the 12, only one hung around. The rest of them fled for their lives. They were scared because they thought, they got Jesus, they're going to come for us next, and we're running, we're out of here. And so Three days later, though, they claim to have seen Jesus alive physically. Now, if they were smart, they would have said, we saw him spiritually. He spiritually rose. Because anything can be spiritual. Right? I can say, well, I had a spiritual moment. We can't validate that. Right? I can't disprove it completely either, but I, you can't validate that. Anything, it's just spiritual. He rose spiritually. No, no, they didn't say he rose spiritually. They went to the audacious level of saying, no, he rose physically. I touched his hands and his feet. It was crazy. Because they all flipped out and were scared when they saw Jesus. 
because you would too if somebody died and then three days later you're touching them and grabbing them, you'd flip out too. So the point is this, is that these scared disciples three days later see something that totally changes who they are. They went from these scared puppies to these roaring lions because now they're standing up in the synagogue. They don't care who knows. They're standing up in the, in the courts of the Sadducees and they're threatening and like preaching at guys that have Bible degrees and they're just giving them the what for. Like James, the early apostle, was stoned to death almost immediately after the resurrection for these bold claims that Jesus had risen from the dead. Let me give you the disciples' story in the history of the disciples. So after the, after the, the resurrection, they go out and start proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. That was their big message. If you read the book of Acts, their big message is, Jesus rose from the dead, y'all. It's crazy. And because of that, you can have life and forgiveness and salvation. And then this is what happened to them because of, they, because of them preaching that message. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified, uh, Matthew was killed with a sword, um, James was crucified, Philip crucified, Simon crucified, Thaddeus, he was shot to death with a bunch of arrows, James, the brother of Jesus, not even one of the 12 disciples, he was stoned to death, Thomas, um, they killed him, they run him through with a spear, Bartholomew was crucified, James, the son of Zebedee, killed by the sword, John was the only one that died of natural causes, but that was only after he was imprisoned and tortured for years and years and years. So my point would be this, now this is what you got to think about. These are 12 men, now let's take away Judas. There are 11 men who said they saw Jesus rise from the dead. Now, either he really did rise from the dead or they all got together and like, all right, we've been embarrassed. So we're going to come up with this story and this is our new story and this is what we're going in. Okay, team huddle, resurrection on three. One, two, three, resurrection. This is, I mean, I'm, it's something like that, right? Because they all had to get together, and then with a bunch of other women too, and like all get together and say, hey, we're going to say that we saw Jesus physically rise from the dead. And then they all were liars and manipulators, just like Jesus would have been if he knew that he wasn't the son of God, went out and convinced everybody of a lie, and then so were bought into their lie that even under incredible torture, so like when Peter was crucified upside down, basically they say historically his whole family died with him. So it wasn't just him, it was him and his wife and his kids. All died together. And Peter was like, no, 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 we're taking this lie to our grave. You have to believe that. You have to believe, because here's what you need to know. They all died, and here's what's crazy. They did not die for what they said they believed. They died for what they said they saw. And there's a difference. How many know people will will drive an airplane into a building and die for what they believe? People, people after the generation of the disciples died for Jesus because of what they believed. And people today all around the world are dying for Jesus because of what they believe. These guys did not die for what they believe. The only people that could have made these audacious claims that I saw Jesus would have been first generation eyewitness accounts. They didn't die for what they believed. They died for what they said they saw. Meaning they were eyewitnesses, not ideologues. Do you see the difference? All kinds of people die for what they believe. Weirdos die for what they believe. I'm not saying because you die for what you believe that that validates anything. People do that all the time. But it's different because they would have known that it was a lie. They would have known that it wasn't true and still said, resurrection on three, one, two, three. And then them, their families, everyone dying all around them underneath torture. I got Listen, listen, put yourself in their shoes for one second. You ever feel pain? How many like pain? 
Okay, how many of y'all are a little bit addicted to some type? Yeah, don't put your hands up, but like, you're trying to ease the pain, you know, like, you know, I got, like, I don't want to get you, but like, we hate pain. We hate pain. Because I know me, just going to the dentist feels like torture. I hate pain. I'm a big sissy. So if I'm one of the disciples, if I'm one of them, man, I'm singing like a canary. You start telling me that you're going to, you know, kill me, crucify me, torture me. They took John and they boiled his body in oil. I would have seen the oil and be like, it was a joke. It was a joke. I would have folded like a cheap suit. The, now, this is just me. This is just me. The only way this goes down, and not one of them broke, by the way. All 11 plus the women plus the, all, not one of them broke? Not one of them came out and said, hey, guys, this was like a big joke, and I am so sorry. Will you please, 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 please don't torture me? That's what would, I would have been, but they didn't. Not only that, but if you'll go back to the original screen, which said this, that, that really the, the reaction of the disciples and the rise of the early church. See, the, the early church had no reason to form, had no reason to rise. I want you to think about this. In their own city, where, the, where the, really the birth of the Christian church began, in the city of Jerusalem, they were underneath incredible persecution. Like, people were getting stoned to death, people were getting imprisoned, people were getting killed. And then, when they finally get out of Jerusalem and they go into the Roman Empire, Rome hates them. The emperors of Rome were purely targeting Christians, trying to annihilate them, trying to kill them. Like if you hear the stories of Emperor Nero having his garden lined with the severed heads of Christian men and women to light the garden. Awful, brutal, evil, nasty stuff. There's no re- My point would be this. There is no logical reason why the early church would have ever risen to become anything unless... There's no reason why the disciples would have reacted that way unless. So my point was this, though, that when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it gives him the potential. His claims pretty much demand that, or you throw him in the loony bin or into a prison cell. When you look at the fulfillment of prophecy, now we start doing math, and that looks insanely, insanely impossible and difficult to pull off. Then when you look at the details of the resurrection, you look at the reaction of the disciples and the rise of the early church, you know what you have to come to? You have to come to this compelling conclusion that Jesus actually was who he said that he was, or you've got to spend your whole life trying to make up flimsy answers that do not hold underneath the weight of scrutiny or argument to try to figure out or explain away who Jesus actually was or where the church, where the disciples or the prophecies or all this. It gets really, really, really hard. I'll tell you this. When I, when I was a teenager, I was probably about 19 maybe, um, I remember I was at a conference and I heard somebody give a talk similar to what I just gave you today. And I remember growing up in church, I'd have my occasional moments of doubt and wonder and question, but I was generally like, okay, no, I'm on board. I've had a personal experience with Jesus, so I'm moving forward. And I heard this guy give this compelling talk about the person of Jesus and talk about some of the things that we talked about here today. And you know what the conclusion that I came to was? Okay, Jesus really was the Christ. That whole 10 decillion to one, I got nothing on that. That whole genealogy, I got nothing on that. All this, I got nothing, I got nothing, I got nothing. And so Jesus, I'm in. And this was, this was what I said to myself that day. I said, Jesus, I'm in. From this point forward, I can disobey you, but I cannot deny you. And that's where I want you to live life. I just don't want you to disobey. I just want you to not be able to deny. Are you hearing me today? So if you're out there today and you said, man, okay, what do I do? Because this is what you've got to ask yourself after this series, after these questions, after today. You've got to ask yourself this question, so what do I do? 
Okay, in light of this evidence, in light of all this stuff, in light of all this knowledge and information and facts and details, in light of the existence of the universe and the fine-tuning of this and the morality in my heart and the, I don't know, all this, what, what do I do with all of this stuff? You have to wrestle with this stuff. And if you don't, your life has implications. It has consequences. And I'm telling you that I want you to wrestle with this stuff. And so here's what I would really say to you today, that if you ever struggled with your faith, I want your faith to be so strengthened and solidified. If you are on the fence today, I want you to jump all the way in. I don't want you to dip your toe into the kiddie pool to test the temperature of the water. I want you to just jump right in. As a matter of fact, this is what I think Jesus would say to you, because this is what Jesus did say. So in the book of Matthew, he says this, So what do you do in light of all this evidence, information, whatever? He said, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Next scripture. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. You know what Jesus is saying? Man, I make a really good, compelling argument in case here. I really do love you. I really am the son of God. I really did bring about a story that if you'll let my story become your story, that salvation, not just in the life to come, but right now, salvation can hit your life. And so all I want you to do, if you ever were on the fence, I want you to start asking. I want you to start seeking. I want you to start knocking. I want you to open up your heart a little bit. I want you to pray. I want you to seek. I want you to do whatever it takes. For those of you who already had faith, I just want your faith to be strong and solidified in Christ. But if you were wavering, if you were doubting, I want you to start pursuing. It's the most logical thing you can do at this point is to start asking, to start seeking, and to start knocking. Would you bow your heads with me today? So, Father, we thank you so much, God. As we pray to you, God, we recognize that you are God. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth. That, Lord God, we are putting our faith in you. That, God, we're recognizing that not only did you create all things, but when all things seem lost and hopeless, that you intervene into the world through Jesus so that we might have salvation through you, so that we might have forgiveness, so that we could be reconciled back to you, God. And so today, for many of us, we're going to put our faith in you. Some of us, we've already done it, but we want to do it again. We want to strengthen it. We want to take that next step. We want to say it again. For some of us, God, we were wavering and doubting and teetering and tottering. And God, we want to be all the way in. So if you would today, if you're in here and you say, Todd, I need to make a commitment to my faith. Then on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand. You want to say, Todd, I believe, but God, I, I just want to say it again. If you're out there and you say, Todd, I have never said yes to Jesus, but I want to start asking and seeking and knocking and pursuing, then on the count of three, I want you to raise your hands just as a sign between you and God to say, God, I'm all in. So on the count of three, one, two, three, and put that hand up in the air. God, I'm all in. God, I'm in. I'm in. No matter what, I'm in. I believe. I want to ask. I want to seek. I want to knock. I want to keep pursuing. I'm in. Let's do this together, church. Let's, let's pray this prayer. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and I want you to say it out loud and just kind of say it after me as I lead you in this prayer. Everybody say this with me. Everybody say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Change my life. Do what you do. God, I need you. I thank you that you came for me, that you died for all, that you rose again. Help me, Lord, to know you and to follow you today and every day for the rest of my life. Help me, Lord. It's in your name that I pray. And give me the best amen you got today. Yeah. 
Thanks again for listening to the New Beginnings Podcast. For more information on New Beginnings Church, please visit us online at nbchurch.tv.